The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Hebrews chapter 10. Learning a little bit about how to build endurance. And no, this is not a seminar on triathlons, though I am about to talk about triathlons. It is about building Christian endurance. A vital need for all of us. If you name the name of Christ today, you are in need of endurance, as the text will tell us. But as we're thinking about endurance, i got to be honest, endurance athletes fascinate me. I don't know if they fascinate you, they fascinate me. They're pretty amazing people, men and women who can run or cycle or swim insane distances for ridiculous amounts of time. Just fascinate me. I think it's, I think it's amazing. And maybe you've heard of the 100-mile ultra trail du Mont Blanc which is a 100-mile race through technical, ever-changing terrain through Italy, Switzerland, and France. Maybe you've heard that. And when I think about these 100-mile races, I think you get to the 60-mile mark, and you're like, I still got 40 miles to go. This is, must be, must be uh, quite despairing when you get to that point. Like, I've already went 60 miles, but i got another 40 to go. Then there's the Hard Rock 100, or the Hard Rock, Hard Rock 100 in Colorado, where runners compete across 66,000 feet of 66,000 total feet of elevation change on an average of 11,000 feet elevation. And one reporter puts it like this, quote, if the distance alone isn't punishing enough, suffocating in the ultra-thin oxygen levels at that altitude it surely is, less than 150 applicants are accepted to this event each year. So you have to actually qualify for the event by actually having completed other ultra races prior to this one. And of course, you can't forget the Tour de France, which is a 21-day, 2,200-mile trek on your bike across the country of France. But that's all child's play, really, if you can say that. That's all child's play compared to these next two endurance races. Alaska's Iditarod Trail 1000 Invitational is a grueling multi-day race that is only for the most experienced athletes. You might be thinking, oh, I've heard of that. That's the sled dog race. Well, actually, this is the man-powered one. This is the one where just you get to trek 1,000 miles across Alaska. It, uh, the website warns, quote, only the most experienced, rugged, and intrepid competitors dare attempt the Iditarod 1000, the world's longest and toughest winter race. Okay, so what is this thing like? Well, racers must make their way across 1,000 miles of brutal Alaskan terrain and weather, and the terrain and weather features include gale force winds, heavy Um, waist-deep snow, blizzards, mud, snow blindness on top of that, and driving rain and sub-freezing temperatures as low as negative 50 degrees. And this must all be faced alone. And actually, you'll have very limited help the first 500 miles, but then the last 500 miles, you have no help whatever. And you have to carry everything by yourself. And you have to make it completely on your own. And then finally... Billed as the hardest triathlon in the world, the Enduro Man Arch to Arc is a 290-mile race that begins with an 87-mile run. Let me say that again. It begins with an 87-mile run from London's Marble Arch to Dover, and it's at Dover where you then get in the water and swim across where? Well, the English Channel for 22 miles, and that's only then to begin in a 181-mile bike from Calais to Paris's Arc de Triomphe. For a total of 290 miles, it takes uh, people typically 100 hours to finish this race, and only 53 a- athletes have ever finished it in the history of the race. Only 53. I guess the rest of them just drop dead. I don't know what happens to the, the rest of them. but uh, 
And as the name obviously indicates, an endurance athlete needs one thing. They need endurance. That's what it's all about. It's really about nothing else, is it? It's about endurance. And these athletes have to give serious and unrelenting attention to what they eat and how they train in order to finish these races, in order to compete and to complete these races. Their bodies must be prepared for the race, and they must fuel their bodies during the race. And in the same way, Christians are in need of endurance so we can make it to the end of our Christian race. In fact, the author says this in verse 36. That's going to be kind of a central text here for us. Verse 36, right in the middle of everything, he says, For you have need of endurance. Christian, I don't know if you knew this today, but you have need of endurance. You're in an ultra-distance race. You have need of endurance. I have need of endurance. Without endurance, we won't finish the race. I know plenty of people who started well that apparently didn't have endurance. They didn't finish the race. They're presently out of the race. The Christian race, that is. We must be like many athletes who not only started these ultra-distance races, but we must also be like those, like the 53, who finished that massive triathlon. We can't just be those who began and didn't finish. And in order to finish, you need endurance. Whatever concept you had of the Christian life coming in here this morning, let me make it clear. You can't make to the end of the Christian life without endurance. The author is clear. You have need of endurance. So the question that every ultra-distance athlete has to ask themselves is before they apply for this particular race, they have to ask, how can I effectively build my endurance so I can complete this race? Not a different race, not a shorter race, not a less grueling race, but this specific race. What do I need to do so I can complete it? It's not enough to just start it. What do I need to do to complete it? What training regimens do I need to implement? What kind of food do I need to start eating? What kind of food do I need to stop eating? And Christians have to ask these exact same questions, spiritually speaking. The author does compare the Christian life to a race here, and he will explicitly, in chapter 12, we'll get there in a few weeks, But the Christian has to ask these kinds of questions spiritually, and thankfully God has given us our training manual and nutrition guide in the Bible, specifically in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 39. In today's passage, we'll examine five practices we must apply in order to build our Christian endurance. And like the text we saw last week, these are not optional. None of them are optional. You can't pick and choose which one you like best. We must must apply all of these in order to build the endurance that will last us our whole Christian race, so that on our deathbed, we will say with the Apostle Paul, I have kept the faith, I have finished the race. So we're going to look at five practices, and the first one is this. The first one, you'll find it in verses 26 through 31, the first one is heed the warnings. Heed the warnings. And if you've been with us and heard any of the other messages from Hebrews, I've already used this phrase, heed the warnings, because it keeps coming up. There's a, a, a cycle of warnings that comes all the way through the book of Hebrews, and it, it gives us several warnings, and we have to heed every single one of them. We can't set any of them aside and, and suggest that they're not for us. No, all of us who profess the name of Christ must heed the warnings. And that's what we see here today in this passage. 
Verse 26, and we saw this a little bit last week, but we're going to go over it again. Verse 26 begins with the word for. So he's grounding what he's about to say in what he just said. And what the author just had said, if you remember last week, in verses 19 through 22, he gave us, I'm sorry, 19 through 25, he gave us three exhortations. And those exhortations were to draw near to God in worship. The other exhortation was to hold fast our confession of hope. And the third exhortation was to not neglect the gathering together of the saints. And he connects that paragraph or that passage now with the word for. And then he makes it in a stunning statement right after that. He says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. His warning follows logically from the three exhortations. The, the logical connection is this. The exhortations are framed like this. Because you have been given access by the blood of Jesus to enter into God's very presence and to call him your heavenly father, draw near to him, hold fast your confession, and consider how to stir up your fellow brothers and sisters in the faith. Then to say immediately after that, to for if we go on sinning willfully, means that the author considers refusal to fulfill the exhortations in verses 19 through 25. He sees that as the same thing as sinning willfully against God and rejecting the knowledge of the truth. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, you see the connection? If you receive the truth that you have full access to God through the blood of Jesus, and yet don't draw near to Him in worship, and don't hold fast your confession, and you forsake the assembly of believers, you are sinning willfully against God and the gospel. That's how seriously we're to treat those exhortations. That's why I said last week none of them are optional. They're all essential. They're not optional accoutrements to the Christian life. They are the Christian life, aren't they? What else is the Christian life except drawing near to God, holding fast our confession, ministering to believers, and having other believers minister to us? That's the Christian life. And if you are setting that all aside, then the author sees us as sinning deliberately against the gospel. What's the result of rejecting the gospel? This is just, this is just terrifying. It should, it's meant to be. For if we go on sinning deliberately, that is, if we go on rejecting the basic Christian life of worshiping God, holding faster confession and, and fellowship, after receiving the knowledge of the gospel, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There no longer remains for you a sacrifice for sins because you've rejected the only sacrifice for sins available. There's no other place that we can find forgiveness. There's no place where other place where God is given forgiveness except in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Islam doesn't have a place for atonement. In fact, Islam doesn't even have a right view of sin, which explains why they don't require a sacrifice for sin. God, Allah can just forgive. Hinduism doesn't have a sufficient sacrifice for sin. In Hinduism, you can rid yourself of sin through the recitation of mantras, fasting, or through washing in certain bodies of water that are designated as sacred rivers, but that won't do it. We all kind of intuitively know that. Neither will our weekly donations to our favorite charity cover our sin. That doesn't atone for our transgressions against God. Our relatively moral conduct with our colleagues 
Maybe we're a little superior morally to our uh, fellow colleagues at work. That's not going to atone for our sin. If we reject Christ and the gospel, there's no other place to go for atonement. Where are you going to go? And if you don't have atonement, then what that means now is you must stand before God completely naked, before a holy God without any recourse to righteousness, without any recourse to forgiveness, and you must pay for your own sins now. That's why Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He didn't just drop out of heaven saying that. It comes with the reality of God, with our sin, with what has happened to us, and what is needed for our sins to be atoned for. The apostles put it like this, there's no salvation in anyone else, and there's no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. So what can we expect, though, if we don't have atonement for our sins? We've already alluded to it. He tells us in verse 27, There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. What does it mean when we stand naked before God without atonement? It means we stand filthy, rebellious, and guilty before a blazingly holy God. That's what it means. A God who can see right through all the veneer, who can see right into our hearts, who can see all the lust that you committed this morning, who can see the attitude that you had towards your brother today. He sees through it all. And without an atoning sacrifice, meeting between us and God, we stand there completely on our own. But as a holy God, because God is beautifully, and I mean that word, beautifully righteous and does not allow one sin to pass through the bar of his justice. God does not allow one sin, small or large, to pass through the bar of his justice. Every sin will be judged. Because he won't allow any sin to pass through the bar of his judgment, he will render judgment on every sinner who stands before him without the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Where will you have your sins judged? you will have them either judged in Christ or in the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And of course, this only makes sense, as hard as it is to hear. As the author points out in his lesser to greater argument in verse 28, listen to how he argues here. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who's trampled underfoot the Son of God? He's going to make a lesser to a greater argument here. He's going to say, listen, the old covenant required the death penalty for anyone who broke that covenant. And he's getting that from a text like Deuteronomy 17, verses 2 through 6. Let me just read that to us. This is now... The Old Covenant, and, and now the Old Covenant's given, been being given by Moses to the people. If there is anyone found among you with, within any of the towns that the Lord your God is giving you, any man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God and transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them or the sun or the moon or any host of heaven which I have forbidden, and it is told you or you hear of it, then you shall acquire diligently... And if it is true and certain that such abomination has been done in Israel, idolatry was considered an abomination, 
Then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or that woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, the one who is is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. So you can hear where the author is getting this principle. Now, that likely sounds harsh to probably all of our modern ears. Wait, you're telling me that God required the death penalty for idolatry and breaking the covenant in Israel? And I would say that's exactly what he required. And none of us have to be apologetic for that. We're talking about the thrice holy God. Imagine the treachery of leaving the God of the universe, the infinite source of goodness, pleasure, and life, and turning to gross half-man, half-animal idols and putting that in place of the eternal God and then worshiping them. The death penalty is exactly what a person like that would deserve, and it's exactly what you and I deserve, quite honestly, isn't it? The author's point is simply that if that was what was required in that inferior now obsolete covenant called the Old Covenant, how much worse would it be for the person who looks the precious Son of God in the eye, the Son of God who who has fulfilled the old, Old Covenant and who out of love has given his life for sinners and spilled his blood for rebels, what do you think of that person who looks that Son of God in the eye and says, meh, not for me, meh, 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 no big deal. after he's received the knowledge of the truth, of the gospel, what do you think he deserves? And the author's just putting it to us. He's just just wanting us to think about it. Just think about it for a second. How much worse punishment do you think would be deserved? And it's almost kind of a rhetorical question. Well, much worse, of course, right? How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved of Uh, by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and outraged the Spirit of grace. He wants us to ponder the horror of rejecting the gospel after having the opportunity to receive the gospel and experienced its sanctifying work. And I just want us to think about that right now. Just think about it. Just ponder it. That's, that's, That's what the author is aiming at. God required the death penalty for rejecting the Old Covenant, but the Old Covenant was temporary. It's now obsolete. He has now sent His beloved Son to fulfill that covenant and to do everything necessary for us rebellious sinners. And in that new covenant, all of our sins are forgiven by one act of righteousness on that cross. Jesus rises from the dead. He's now Lord of all. And just upon looking upon him in repentant faith, he forgives all of our sins at once, never to bring them up again, and never hold them again at the bar of God's justice. All of those sins have been dealt with in Christ. And then God tells us to draw near to him as a heavenly father, and we say, yeah, that's all kind of dull. I don't need that stuff. I'd rather do my own thing right now. When someone rejects God's grace like that after receiving the knowledge of the truth, God is rightfully outraged. When the blood of Christ is treated as common or as no big deal, God is justly furious. And as I thought about how to illustrate this, two illustrations came to mind. I should take that back. One illustration came to mind, and I realized it wasn't enough. So then a second one came to mind. And let me actually offer you both of them so I can help us to see how serious this is. 
It's like a loving daddy who spent the last several years secretly storing a beautiful 1977 Camaro Z28 for his son, pouring hours of time and energy and money into redoing this beautiful car, bringing it up to factory standards while adding some sweet upgrades like a new paint job, a new exhaust header, upgraded suspension, new custom wheels. I grew up in auto repair, so it's just on the brain. He's done all this work, and it's, it's, it's been hidden, and now he's going to reveal it, and he's going to wheel it out. Just a beautiful piece of work. The, the son looks at it and says, yeah, you know, that's just not for me, Dad. In fact, I want nothing to do with you or the car. Okay? That's, how, that's kind of outrageous, isn't it? But then I realize that's not nearly capturing what's going on here, is it? It's more like the dad who, after his own son has slapped his wife, his mother, and stolen all of the father's money and goods, and after all of that, burnt down the dad's house. And the dad is now finally able to establish himself back into a new home and and now opens his doors back up to his son and says, Son, you have sinned against me, but I am ready to open my doors back to you. You are welcome into our home. I know you are struggling. I know you are without a home. I know you need help. All is forgiven. Just just come in. And the son says, I don't need you or your forgiveness. I didn't do anything wrong. That's the outrage we're talking about. That's the outrage of looking the Son of God in the face and saying, no, I'd rather go elsewhere. I'd rather get something else. I'd, I'd rather do this on my own. I'd rather stand before God on my own. I'd rather go do my own thing right now. Or just simply, yeah, it just doesn't thrill me. That's the outrage the author is talking about. When a person hears the gospel and receives the truth in some way, only to reject it and say, it's not for me, the only thing that that person can look forward to on the timeline of their life is the final judgment, which will be far worse if that person had not entertained the gospel at all. For we know him who said, this is now the author, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, you might be wondering, whoa, who is he talking to? Who could he be talking to? He's speaking to everyone who professes the name of Jesus Christ. And if you haven't been with us for the the past several uh, uh, sermons on Hebrews, that might be a little jarring to you. But that is who he is speaking to. He's speaking to everyone who professes the name of Jesus Christ. Everyone in here professes the name of Jesus Christ has received a knowledge of the truth at some level. And he is warning you to not go on sinning deliberately after receiving that knowledge. Because if you do, you've rejected atonement and there's nothing nothing left for you to do except for stand before God in his full righteous anger. But you might be thinking, Derek, honestly, Derek, This is not me. I do draw near to God. I love the Lord. I love Him. I draw near to Him. When I'm confronted with challenging situations, I hold fast to my confession of faith, and I do not forsake the gathering together of the saints. And I would say, wonderful. Excel still more. And allow this severe warning to keep you obeying those three exhortations in verses 22 through 25. 
Don't say this warning's not for me because I'm presently doing this. Allow them to keep you doing it. The warning's intended to keep you near the Lord Jesus and drive those who are presently drifting back to him. That's what the warning is meant to do. So hear it, receive it, heed it. It's how we build Christian endurance. Now there may be some of here, here I trust, that are, are rightly terrified by this warning because you have found in you a, a, now a beginning of a, a hardening. You're, you're beginning to neglect the body. You're beginning to draw away from Christ. You can feel a drift, and this is terrifying you. You're nursing a pattern of, of not drawing near to God and, and rejecting the local body of believers. You not, may not be living a flagrantly immoral life, but you are drifting from the gospel, and so this warning should trouble you. If you turn from Christ, you no longer have a sacrifice for sins. The next event you can look forward to is receiving the sentence of eternal death at the final judgment. So the warning is to bring you back. But the author doesn't stop at a warning, thankfully. It's not where we're going to stop today. I debated on whether just doing this passage or to continue with the following passage, and I think they all have to come together in order to get the full force of what he is saying here when he says, you have need of endurance. If we just stopped here, I don't think we would have gotten as much, that we, all that we needed. So we're going to continue. He doesn't stop here with just the warning. He's going to go on in verses 32 through 39 and demonstrate that he is confident that his readers are going to heed the warning. He's confident they're going to listen. So that's encouraging. So we need to look at four more vital practices we must pursue in order to build our endurance. The first one is heed the warning. Heed the warning. Please heed the warning. Please heed the warning. And if you are presently running well, continue to run well. Take heed that you stand lest you fall. Don't become arrogant. Don't begin to look down on others who are struggling. Praise God that you are where you are and be careful, be wise, heed the warning. Let, it, let the, the horror of rejecting Christ resonate in your soul so that you never will. Number two, re, he calls us here to remember our conversion. Remember our conversion. Verse 32 and he's so pastoral, the, the author of Hebrews here. I, I'm looking forward to meeting him someday. When it's finally revealed who he is, right? This mystery man. But he's so pastoral because when he gives these warnings, he knows what people are thinking. Like, oh, this is really hard and scary. And, and it's, am I supposed to be lacking assurance now? No. But recall the former days when you, after you were enlightened. Okay, so now he's going to encourage them. There, there was a time when, remember, when you were running so well? Look at what he says. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, that means enlightened with the gospel, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those who are so treated. So what's going on here? They're suffering persecution right after they became Christians and boom, the persecution came. And did they fold? No, they were persevering with grace. It was beautiful. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings. We're not told what it was. We kind of know what it was. It involved the taking of some of their property. But beyond that, we're not sure, but it was suffering, it was a struggle, publicly exposed to reproach, whatever that looked like. 
whether they're being paraded through the streets, whether they're having their names published, whatever. As Christians being told that they're Christians and you need to pick on them, we don't know. But they're exposed to a reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. What did they do? Did they fold? Did they try to escape? No. Beautifully, verse 34. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. They were able to see with such clarity their inheritance in heaven and the reality of God in Christ that they were able to endure incredible persecution so that when the persecutors came along and said, we're taking your home too, and they're like, take it. I got a better one coming. And not only that, they were having compassion on those who were in prison. They were bearing rich, luscious spiritual fruits because their hearts were believing God's promises. Their spiritual vision was clear. They saw heaven, they saw their inheritance, they saw Christ with the eyes of faith. They were running well. And so the author is saying, remember that former zeal. You remember that? Don't you remember how good it was when you were first converted and how you were running? That needs to last you the whole race. That can't just be for the first part of it. That zeal, that passion, that that faith, that sight of Christ, that faith in your inheritance, that's got to last the whole time, not just the first part, not just those early days. How many Christian uh, testimonies do we have about just being so passionate the first few years of our conversion just kind of drift off in the latter part of our life? I see it a lot. I see it even in my own heart, in my own life. In the light of the warning of verses 26 through 31, the, the author is giving his Readers, very practical application. They must bring actively to their mind those days when they were running well and then continue in that spirit of love for Christ and trust in God. So we build our endurance by heeding the warnings but also recalling those times when we are running well and seek to make sure that we are running well the whole time, not just for one little section, not just here and there. So remember your conversion. But next, he's going to have us also cling to our confidence in Christ. Let's look at verse 35. It says, remember your conversion. Remember when when you you, you had such faith that you could endure incredible trials with joy. Remember that? Remember how awesome that was? Verse 35, therefore, do not throw away your Confidence, which has a great reward. That word confidence is the same word that we've already seen in verse 19 where the author says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. It's that confidence. The confidence that we have to go right into God's throne room by the blood of Jesus. God is your heavenly father. You can go to him at any time. You can ask him for anything, right? Don't throw away that confidence. What that means, therefore, is when he says don't throw away your confidence, he means don't throw away your Christianity. Christianity is the reality that we can confidently enter into God's very presence by the blood of Jesus. That's Christianity. We know God. We have God through the blood of Jesus. That is Christianity. To throw away your confidence is to throw away your relationship with God. That's his point. It's to throw away Christ. It's not some optional thing. It's because he's connecting it back to verse 19 here. He's saying don't throw away that confidence you have to 
draw near to God. That confidence that you had that was so vibrant during the early days of your first conversion. Now, the author's already stated the negative reason in verses 26 through 31 why we can't turn our backs on Christ. And now he's going to give us a positive reason. Okay? Don't turn your backs on Christ, verses 26 through 31, because of the judgment you will face apart from the atoning sacrifice of Christ. But now, here's the positive. Don't throw away your confidence because you are going to receive a great reward if you don't. See what he says? Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Now, what's this reward? In the, in the New Testament, there's evidence that believers will receive rewards for what they did in this life, for, their, for our obedience and faithfulness. Wonder of wonders, not only were we saved by grace, but then the Lord designs it in such a way that when we stand before him, we are actually going to be given rewards for what we did in this life for his name and for his glory. That just should astound us and blow us away. So there is evidence in the New Testament for these kinds of discrete rewards, we could call them. Individual rewards, awards for each individual Christian, right? Um, each Christian will be judged on his own merits in, in, terms, of his, in terms of what he has done, not on his, for his salvation, but in terms of what he's done in the Christian life, and he will receive what, for what uh, he has done back to him in terms of a reward. There's evidence in the New Testament for that very thing. However, I don't think that's the reward here. I think the reward here is eternal life. Don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. The reward is eternal life. Don't throw away Christ, because the reward of holding on to Christ is eternal life. The reward of, of holding on to Christ is heaven. And the reason why I think that's the case is because of the word reward is actually in parallel with uh, other two phrases, which which I think indicate that he's referring to heaven or our, our, our eternal state. Look at in verse 34. He says, For you had compassion on those in prison and joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew you had that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Okay, hold that phrase in your mind. Therefore, do not throw away uh, your confidence, which has a great reward. Better possession and abiding one, great reward. For you have need of endurance for that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. What is promised, what is the reward? It's the better possession and the abiding one. And, I, and I, again, I, I'm going to turn now to chapter 11 because this better and abiding possession that these Christians were looking forward to is set in contrast to their current living situation. The, the author is saying, your current living situation is in turmoil, but you were able to give all that up because you, had a, uh, you knew you had a better possession coming, namely heaven. And this is the same kind of thing, the same kind of faith that Noah and Abraham and Abel and Sarah had. And, it's, and this is, is indicated in here, verse, in chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. I want to read it to us here. These, namely Abel, Noah, Abraham, and Sarah, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to call, be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. What people are anticipating in the book of Hebrews is heaven, the eternal city. 
the new heavens and the new earth. So I take this then, when he talks about this great reward, I, I take that to mean heaven, that city. Don't throw away Christ because holding on to Christ will get you a great reward, namely eternal life. So then the implication then is this command is not, the command to not throw away our confidence is not an optional command. It's not something where we, oh, we can throw away our confidence and that means we'll miss out on some individual rewards when we stand before the the Lord. That's not what he's talking about here. No, the reward here is heaven. To throw away your confidence in Christ is to lose eternal life. But if we are going to cling to our confidence in Christ and receive the reward of eternal life, we need endurance. Oh, we are in so desperate need of endurance. This Christian race is not a 5K. It's a marathon. We could say it's, a, it's an ultra marathon. It's not 3.1 miles. It's 26.2 miles. It's 100 miles. And some of you might be thinking, yeah, but 3.1 miles feels like 100 miles to me, Derek. Well, okay, I think you know what I'm saying. It's a long race. It's not a sprint. Recall the joy that you had when you first came to Christ and recognize that you need endurance to finish your race. It's not enough to start the race. Let me say that again. It's not enough to start the Christian faith. As I've told you before, I have a list of names and it continues to grow every month of Christians who started the race, who are presently out of the race, and who said they actually never were in the race and they want nothing to do with the race. And if I talk to them about the race again, they're going to be really angry. You have need of endurance. We have need of endurance. We need to be able to hold our confidence firm until the end. And this requires a significant amount of endurance. When runners are training for a marathon or an ultramarathon, they train very differently than those who are training for sprints, for short-distance races. Sprinters work on explosive strength and develop their capacity to hold very high speeds for a very short amount of time. And a men's Olympic 100-meter dash only lasts 10 seconds. The 200-meter dash, I believe, is under 20 seconds. Sprinters lift weights to train their upper and lower body so that they have the right amount of balance as they are running. And because they're developing their fast twitch muscle fibers, they often will find sprinters are very well-defined, very muscular and well-defined. And that extra muscle weight is really inconsequential because they only have to run 100 meters, right? You don't have to carry that weight a very short distance, and they need to be very explosive right off the line. The marathon or ultra-distance runner trains very differently. They need to train for their race to last two hours for a marathon and way beyond that for some of these ultra marathons and these ultra triathlons. And he must be careful not to add a lot of extra body weight because you have to carry that weight with you the whole race. He needs to trim his weight. He needs to be very careful about what he's eating, how he's training. And the idea of trimming weight will actually come into play in chapter 12, believe it or not. We're going to talk about that. Trimming spiritual Wait, but the point here is that you are running a marathon. I'm running a marathon. We don't want to explode out of the gate and then peter out after 200 meters. If, if you turn on a, a marathon, no one is saying at, when the gun is sounded, did you see that first 200 meters? That was amazing. No one's saying that. None of the, if the, you, tell, you correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think any of the announcers are saying, did you see that first 200 meters that that runner got? No one's saying that because what matters is how you're doing at mile 19, mile 20, mile 21. That's what matters. 
It's not enough to begin well at your initial conversion. We must develop and maintain a sustainable pace so that we can make it all the way to the end. And there's a lot of practical implications for this idea of a sustainable pace. And we'll get into those in chapter 12. We need endurance so that we can push through the difficult portions of the race when we feel like giving up. You know what you need when you hit mile 60 and you know you have 40 miles left? You need endurance. I was listening to a guy who had completed the Iditarod uh, last year, and he was at mile 960. And it was at mile 960 that he was ready to satellite call in the rescue. He had completed 960 miles. The last 40 are what were killing him. And what he did was he just remembered his training, just put one foot in front of the other. That's all you got to do for the next 40 miles. Sometimes all we need to do is just the next step of obedience, the next step of obedience, the next step of obedience. Life is so hard and so bad right now. All I can do is the next step of obedience, and that's all you're required to do. Just keep, keep going. The next step of obedience. We'll talk more about that in chapter 12. But now the author is going to offer a gracious balance, and I really appreciate this. Again, this is pastoral heart coming through. In verse 37, We need to grow in our capacity to run long distances. But it's not as long as you think. It's not as long as you think. Look at what he says. Yet in a little while. Isn't that nice? Yet in a little while, the coming one will come and not delay. The coming of Christ in the scope of eternity, in in the scope of eternity, the coming of Christ, us finishing the, the, the Christian race, it's a very small amount of time. The race isn't as long as you think. See, Satan would love to convince people that the Christian race is easier than it is and so that they don't prepare well enough. But he would also love to convince people that it's harder than it is so that you never enter it or that you become discouraged. You can make it, is what he's saying. You can make it. Fourth practice, fuel your soul by faith. Fuel your soul by faith. Faith is the way that man is always related rightly to God. This is the way it's always been in the Old Covenant. It was never by works. In fact, if you approached it by works, that, was, that would be a problem. And then the law would expose your sin. Verse 38, but my righteous one shall live by faith. If you're a long-distance runner, you need the right fuel to fuel your body before and during the race. And ask any endurance athlete, and they will tell you, What they eat and fuel their body with makes all the difference in the world. It's the difference between finishing the race and having a brutal crash right in the energy crash right in the middle of the race. You have to fuel the right way. And it's a a precision science from from, uh, apparently from what I've learned. It's only by seeing the reality of God and Christ in heaven with the clear eyes of faith that we are enabled to persevere with joy in the midst of suffering. We need clear eyes of faith. We need our faith to be fed. It's why we treasure and exalt and prioritize the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God in this church. We need it constantly. We need it every Sunday. We need it every day. Fuel your soul by faith. My my righteous one shall live by faith. But faith is also essential because faith is is what is needed to please God. We can't please God without faith. Look at what he says in the latter part of verse 38. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. 
To shrink back is to renounce our faith, to set aside those exhortations in verses 22 through 25 that we saw last week. To shrink back means to no longer entrust yourself to Jesus, to no longer find him as the satisfying Lord of your life. And this is a similar verse that uh, similar to the verse that comes up in chapter 11, verse 6. He says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Faith glorifies God as the infinitely trustworthy, dependable, and satisfying creator. That's why faith is so essential. When we don't believe God's promises, we're saying that he's not infinitely trustworthy, dependable, and satisfying. That's what's happening there in our hearts. But true faith feeds on the promises of God, promises laid out all through the New Testament about what God is planning to do for his people when they reach heaven. And when we feed on those promises, we are enabled to persevere. We are enabled to endure when time is rough. But finally, we have to embrace assurance. This is the last one. Embrace assurance. Some of you might be asking, especially, especially if you haven't been with us, and we've talked a lot about this in the, in the previous messages on Hebrews, you might be wondering how all these warnings fit together with the assurance that I talked about last week. Some of the feedback I got last week was like, thank you, Derek, that was so helpful to hear about the assurance that we have in Christ. And here we go, giving a warning. Like, what? Derek? Well, I'm just following the text, so don't blame me. But, but the question naturally arises, how does this all fit together? It almost sounds like you're saying that a Christian can lose their salvation. How can I draw near to God with full assurance that you talked about in verse 22, if I get the severe warning in verses 26 through 31, and this serious exhortation to not throw away my confidence, and this warning that if I shrink back, my God's soul has no pleasure in me. The sharp warnings and exhortations are intended to push you directly to God's throne of grace. That's what they're meant to do. Not to keep you wobbling in uncertainty, but to push you to the throne of grace, to push you to get assurance. The warning is written in such a way that it's linked to verses 19 through 25 so as to motivate you to have full assurance of your faith in Christ. That's the entire point of Hebrews, and that's a point that so many commentators and preachers lose. The point is assurance because genuine assurance is what enables you to persevere to the end. So embrace assurance. Look at what he says in verse 39. The author is confident. He knows, he believes that a genuine believer cannot lose their salvation. Look at what he says. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed. We are not those who shrink back and are destroyed. We are not. He can't say it much more clearly. We are, we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. That's who we are. He's confident that these people are going to heed the warnings. Why? Because he's confident they are believers. See, God has given us a secure salvation. But a secure salvation is one that keeps believing. A secure salvation is one that continues to make that next step of obedience, even when life is crashing in on you. 
A person who has a secure salvation is not someone who believes once and then wanders off and says, well, I believe back there, I guess I'm okay even though I'm an atheist now. That's not a secure salvation. A secure salvation is one who keeps believing in Jesus. That's the salvation that God has given you. By exhorting us to draw near to God and to hold fast our confession and to maintain regular fellowship with other believers and to heed the warnings and to not throw away our confidence, all of those are meant to enable the believer to persevere in their faith. The response of the believer when they are confronted with these warnings is to say, we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed. A Christian hears that warning in verses 21 through 26 through 31 and draws near to God in faith, repentance, and worship. A Christian who hears this warning is one who refastens his grip on Jesus Christ. A Christian who hears this warning makes sure that he is fully engaged in the local church. Why? Because a Christian is one who does not shrink back and is destroyed, but one who keeps believing. That is what a Christian is. And that's what the author believes. So this passage is for everyone here who claims the name of Christ. If you're a professing Christian here this morning, that means that you're saying that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is God the Son, that he has died on your behalf, that he has paid for your sins, that all of your sins are forgiven, that you can enter into the throne of, God's, uh, the throne of God and go to before the throne of grace as approaching God as your heavenly Father, and that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. That's, a, that's what you're saying by professing Christ. If you have received that knowledge of the truth, then we need to heed the warning in verses 26 through 31. And they need to, that warning needs to push us to obey the verse, uh, exhortations in verses 22 through 25. We need to recall our initial conversion and the joy and hope in Christ that we had. We need to not throw away our confidence in Christ, and we need to keep fueling our souls with God's promises and the Word of God and recognize that true Christians are those who do not fall away from the faith. True Christians are those who keep believing to the end. That's how we're supposed to apply these passages today. But if you're not a Christian here this morning, and this is maybe the first or second time you've even heard the Bible taught, or maybe you've heard it a little bit in the past, but this is the first time you've heard it really explained in this way, Let me speak to you for just a moment, if you would indulge me, please. God has created you for himself. You belong to him as his creature. And you have a built-in rebellion against God. It's built in. See, our first parents, Adam and Eve, they sinned against God. And ever since then, we have all inherited a sinful nature. We have a built-in defiance against the living God. In a sense, it's your fault. In a sense, it's the fault of your sinful, sinful nature. God will hold you accountable, but you need to know that it is your sinful nature that is bringing about this rebellion. You have a built-in bent for it. And God has made us to love Him with our, all of our heart and all of our soul and with all of our strength and all of our mind and love our neighbor as ourself perfectly from the heart at all times without fail, without mistake. And if any of us have a modicum of honesty, we would have to say, I don't ever do that. I've never done that in the way that the Bible prescribes. Not even close. And so you might think, well, I'll mend my ways. I'll just start obeying God now, and I'll start being nice to my neighbor. Well, that won't cover your sin. Only Jesus' death on the cross can cover your sin. 
Only his death on the cross is the atonement that God will accept. Jesus Christ died in the place of sinners and removed their debt completely. If you come to Christ even today, your sins will be forgiven for all eternity. If you turn to Christ in repentant faith, turning from your sin and acknowledging Christ the Lord and putting your trust in Him and believing in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, God will forgive all of your sins, not on the basis of anything that you have done or will do, but purely on the basis of His grace and on the work of Jesus Christ. But if you reject the Lord Jesus then you stand before God naked, guilty, defiled, rebellious. And God will do what only a just God can do, and that is judge your sin. And not for a moment, not for a few years and then annihilation, but for all eternity. So the call to you today is to come to the Lord Jesus for salvation. He is sweet, he is tender, he is patient, And he is calling you today to come to him to receive full forgiveness of your sins. And you can do that right now, even as you're sitting in your chair. You don't need to talk to me. You don't need to talk to anybody else. You can take the knowledge that you have right now of the gospel and come to the Lord Jesus on your own. I'm happy to talk to you if you want to talk. But you can go deal with the Lord Jesus by yourself. And if you're a believer here today, the encouragement is for us to heed the warnings. Heed the warnings to recall our conversion. To not throw away our confidence, which has a great reward. To fuel our soul by faith and to embrace our assurance. And if we do these things, we will build an endurance that will make it all the way to the end of our Christian race. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are weighty, weighty truths, and yet they create a serious joy. Would you help each person here to heed these words from your scripture? God, if there are those out there who are struggling, if this has been a a wounding to a tender conscience, I pray that they would seek out help. Pray that they wouldn't just hide themselves but that they'd open up their hearts to another believer or to another friend and that they would get things sorted out, that they might walk in the joy of full assurance of faith. Every word in this text is a word from a loving Father, a loving Creator, a Father who does all to make sure that His children will join Him in heaven one day without the loss of any one child. You are the perfect Father. And we thank you for this word this morning. Would you please help us to apply it to our lives and our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.